Well, hello again, everyone. This is Dr. Jim Hoven with Ramos Law, and we are on our next episode of the Ramos Law Podcast, and I'm really, really happy today with my guests that they took the time to come out and join me because this is not an easy ask. Like, I have two power players in the law industry here at Ramos Law. I have the managing partner, Brian Calandra. Welcome, Brian. Good morning, Jim. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome, and I have his lovely head of employment division, <laughs> Wife, Colleen Calander here with me. Hi, Hi, Colleen. Hi, how's it going? It's going good, going good. And so listen, I'm. it's really, I know your schedules are crazy. And so the fact that you could separate some time to share some insights about all things, um, not only what you do, but how you do it, it means a lot to me. So thank you very much for coming on. I think the audience is gonna get a really valuable insight on what it's like to live as a as a couple, both in law or in that professional side, because there's a lot of couples that do it, but also they don't know how to navigate that. And you guys have found a really, really great way to do that. And so where we're going to take the conversation is kind of wherever it goes. It's going to, there's be some fun. We might talk about some law stuff, but parenting as a couple and parenting as a dual working couple and parenting in the same profession, I'm fascinated by it. So we'll just let this thing go where it goes and uh, let's have some fun. Sounds good. All right. Sounds real good. All right. <laughs> so all right. first of all, a little bit background from you guys as uh, we're getting into the episode here. Brian, you came from, and you, you we're all really good friends here, so I know your backstories, but I think people would be fascinated to learn how you ended up in law school coming from your background of incredible depth, in-depth to service, really all about service and customer service. Can you kind of take us through a little bit of the childhood history and how you end up going to law school? Sure. Um, so I was born and raised in, in Michigan, uh, northern Detroit suburbs, and uh, I'm Sicilian. And my family uh, was in the restaurant business. Basically, my maternal grandfather started a, a catering operation called Alcamo's. And Alcamo is a, a seaside village in Sicily where my great-grandfather was born. Um, in those days, in the 60s and early 70s, the, the business included a couple catering halls, we made spaghetti sauce, sold it in jars. We made Italian sausage, sold that. There was an Italian market as well. Uh, by the time I, I came of age, uh, we had the one catering hall, and that's where I started working when I was 11 years old. Um, okay, And uh, I was a dishwasher that day, um, 1986, if I wow. recall correctly. And how old were you at that time, 1986? I was 11. 11 years old, yeah. jumping in the family business. Well, what happened, I have an older brother who was 14 and he was working his tail off. And my dad just said, you know, I was ready. And uh, <laughs> hard work is real important in my family. And so that's how I ended up on that path. At the same time, my mother had bigger plans uh, for her boys and she really pressed education in the home, uh, which might not have been my dad's uh, first thing he was thinking about for me. Um, but uh, from there, you know, the message from my mother was, this business isn't for you. you. You need to do something bigger, something something more with your life. And that's what your grandfather would have wanted. And he had passed when I was a baby. And I've always had a big mouth. I've always loved to argue. I was captain <laughs> of my debate team in high school. And uh, from a very young age was was thought to be a future lawyer. And it's what I love. And, and that's how I ended up here today. So do you think that your family's expectations, because they saw in you the ability to, to in whatever they saw it measured as be a lawyer, did that weigh on you? Or did you consider anything else before going to law school? Well, that's a funny question. Because um, I'm not the type of person that likes to do things that people expect him to do. Mm. I've always kind of been cut from a different cloth, the black sheep of the family a lot of times. And so there was a time when I was in college 
when I was thought I was going to be a psychologist, uh, which is kind of funny now because I'm not a very good listener. Um, uh, much <laughs> You're my <better>. psychologist. <laughs> that makes me <laughs> much better talker <laughs> than a listener. And as I was getting closer and closer to graduating and looking at PhD programs, um, I just started getting depressed. I, I wasn't happy. I didn't know what the heck was going on. And then all of my uh, debate buddies from high school, they're all gearing up for the LSAT and getting ready to go to law school. And I don't know, one day the light bulb went back on in my head and said, it was basically like, hey, Demi, why don't you go and follow that path that you were always on and become a lawyer? And um, there's a, a school of thought in psychology that says that you basically have three types of people. You have uh, people that are born to do one thing and they do that thing. So little little Johnny is told when he's five years old, he's going to be a doctor and he never thinks about anything else. He becomes a doctor. Mm -hmm. Then there's the drifters who really never stay with anything. And then there's the people that explore and then make a choice. And ironically, that's what I ended up doing almost by accident. And it worked out really well for me because I, I know that I considered other things before mm -hmm. I landed on something that I think I was always meant to do. That is beautiful. Yeah. I love that. So I'm going to come back to something that you said in a little bit with respect to psychology. I'm going to come back to that. But in the meantime, Colleen, I want to hear your story. I mean, I've heard it, but I want the audience to hear where you came from, because I know your dad is super, super successful in the insurance industry and, and he's grooming you, right? To have all these things. And then you being an independent, strong young woman decide that you want to go a different direction. So your story is fascinating to me. Yeah. So I, I was probably psychology number one that Brian described. I always <laughs> wanted to be a lawyer. Um, it's mostly because my skill set is pretty limited. Admittedly. Um, I'm really good at reading and remembering and memorizing things. So that was a really important skill set. Um, the other thing was um, I, I always enjoyed school and liked school. And so something that had to do with academics or reading things and regurgitating them was the profession for me. Um, I was not the kind of person that was gonna go build something or paint something or do something along those lines. It just wasn't, that's just not how I'm wired. So for me, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer at a pretty young age. I think for a minute I wanted to be president, but yeah, that, I want to do that. <laughs> Who wants that job? That, Which oftentimes yeah, that's, still, like, that's still out there. <laughs> yeah, I hey, guess I technically could. Um, I did take some really great um, classes in college, but I really was on a path for law school. It's funny, my dad actually told me not to be a lawyer. He was just he. My father is incredibly successful, and he's very driven. Um, and he did not want me to become an attorney. He told me uh, point blank that he worked with lawyers all the time, that they really weren't that great, and that I'd never make <laughs> any money doing it, and that I could do bigger bigger, and better. Um, and I, I said, no, I, I want to be a lawyer, and this is my path, and I'm going to go do it. So I took the LSAT and went to law school. So with your dad, I'm interested in the relationship dynamics because you and your dad are close, yeah. and he didn't want you to do something, and you wanted to do it how I'm sure people listening are either experiencing that or have experienced or have kids, or maybe they're on the other side of that. How did you navigate that as, as a young woman going through that? Did it strain your relationship? And what did you guys do to, to say, Hey, it's my life. I got to go my direction. Or how did that play out? Yeah. So my dad had some really big plans for me. Um, it was funny. I, um, I ended up touring a lot of college campuses that he, he wanted me to go to. And I think the breaking straw, um, or the straw that broke it all was at Dartmouth when we went to Dartmouth. And I, I, I mean, I could have gotten into Dartmouth. It, it's a fine school. I, I think it's a lovely 
school. People do great that come out of Dartmouth. But he's like, he says to me, you're going to ski and you're going to hike and you're going to camp and you're going to go to Dartmouth. And I'm like, (laughs) who are you talking about? Like, like, what the hell? That's clearly not me. Um, When have I ever skied? Well, first of all, I don't ski. Don't. I'm scared of heights. I will not ski. And he knows this about me. Um, (laughs) But it goes with Dartmouth. Yeah, it goes with Dartmouth. He was like, you could go camping and hiking. I'm like, when in my history with you, have we ever gone camping and hiking? together. Never. Um, this is not, this is not my path. This is not. And so we kind of had a little chit chat at Dartmouth. We left Dartmouth. I never applied to Dartmouth. I told him I was going to the university of Wisconsin. It was more my feel. I just liked, I liked the feel of the campus. I liked the chill kind of vibe that it had the friendly vibe. I, I felt like it fit me better. And so that was that. And then, um, with the law school decision, I just told him I was going to law school. Um, he very, it's kind of funny. On my like two days before I graduated, he had a sit down chit chat with me at a Chinese, Chinese restaurant yeah, a, story. Yeah, a Chinese <laughs> yeah, this, food restaurant. This is a tough one. Where he's like, "You're gonna be independent," and I'm like, "What do you mean I'm gonna be independent?" He's like, "You're gonna start paying for yourself again. Like you, like you're." Well, not Congrats. Again. This would well be like the, okay, for the first yeah, time. okay. This would be for the first time. He's like, <laughs> okay. "Good luck to you. I'm glad you're graduating." And I was like crying. Like, what do you mean I have to pay for myself? <laughs> like, he was like, uh, "Dude, that's what grownups do. That's what adults do." And so after we had that little discussion, um, I went back to him. I said, I'm going to law school and I'm just going to go do it. And he said, go for it. And my my family's philosophy was, is that they would, um, and they were very generous. They paid for my undergrad education. I had it fully paid for me. That's a wonderful gift a family can give to you. I mean, absolutely. I came out debt free. Um, but the deal was if I wanted to go anything above undergrad, um, that it was my responsibility to pay for it. So then I kind of looked at him and said, well, why did I graduate early from undergrad? I should have stuck it out and stayed here like five years, six years, <laughs> taking the long plan. Always thinking. Yeah, right. <laughs> but by that time, um, yeah, it was game over and it was time to graduate. So yeah, so it was my it was my decision and he he was respectful of it and helped me find a place in Lansing, Michigan and off I went. Wow. Well, yeah. I got to ask you guys something on the subject of parenting because as parents, there's a million ways to do it. And I don't know that there's many wrong ways and there's lots of right ways. And so you guys are now coming up in a time where parenting is a little bit different, right? Not every parent now says your kid has to go to college. My parents, my dad was dead set on, you will go to college, you will be a doctor, a lawyer, you will this, that, the other thing. Now there's so many opportunities with different careers and different pathways. It might be different, but discipline and how much time parents should spend with their kids and all that kind of stuff. How did your parenting styles that you received mold into how you guys are as parents for little Kess right now? Well, we're just hoping the best for little Kess. That's what I can say. (laughs) 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 If you're wondering what our parenting style is like, I think it's pretty much. We call it survival parenting. Yeah. Um, Explain that, survival parenting. Well, it's interesting. We're a bit older uh, as far as parents goes. Uh, I'm 44 and uh, we have an eight-year-old. And so, yeah. you know, on the spectrum, we're a little on the older side. And when we became parents, we noticed, um, even before we became parents, when we were becoming parents, we noticed that the parenting world is very cliquish, meaning there's this school of thought over here for this issue and this school of thought over there for that issue. So like homeschoolers all do yeah, here, you people know, that have their kids in yeah. 17 sports. Or how don't say do you, no. Yeah, you long, never use the word no. How long no. do you breastfeed? Do you co-sleep? Do gotcha. You, you know, yeah. do you let your kids eat foods that come out of a package? I mean, there's there's pretty much a line in the sand for all these parents out there. And 
Boy, Colleen and I, we didn't really care about any of it. And what we found that our parental philosophy uh, by default is what we call survival parenting. And we basically do whatever works for us and whatever works for our kid. And that changes yeah. on, mm -hmm. on a regular basis as she grows. And that's the hardest thing as parents is to, is to track the development of the child because she's still the same little girl to us, but now she's eight, not six. And there's a big difference between eight and six. And it's not something that we easily pick up on because we see her every day. Mm -hmm. And so we've had to adapt our strategy over time. Um, but in terms of how I was raised and uh, how I'm raising or how we are raising our kid, um, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, we, we insist on hard work. We insist on maximum effort. Um, we insist on doing the right thing when no one's watching. These are the same values that I was taught as a little boy and the ones that we share with her. We might go about it a little differently than our parents did. Um, I think there's probably more, let's call it participation from okay. our child than I yeah. think I had. You mean a, you guys decide things, how things like go, she, as opposed to you guys necessarily telling her yeah, how it's going to yeah. go? Yeah, I think it's a little more okay. democratic, even though she knows the buck stops with us. We, I think that's maybe a little bit different than it was for me as a kid. Um, and our parents' generation was more like, you, you do what you're told. And I think our kid follows that rule. But we do try to get her input when we can so that she feels like she has um, more control over the outcome. Because what I've taught her and I think what my father taught me is, is you know, don't ever, be, don't ever get yourself into a position in life where you're blaming anybody. Because the way our daughter turns out is on her. And, and the decisions that she makes over time, it's not on us. We're going to give her opportunity. We're going to do the best that we can as we mess around in this parental world and try right. not to screw her up. But <laughs> at the end of the day, she's not going to be one of those kids that gets older and says, well, my mommy didn't do this or my daddy did this. And that's why I am the way I am today. We teach her that it's on her and, and how she turns out in life. And that's I, great. And I think that's empowering. And I think my parents sent a similar message. And for my mother, it was always, you can do whatever you set your mind to. That was, that was, that was the buzzword back then. Um, with Kess, I think it's more about talking about choice and how important choices are. And we can't make them for her as much as we want. You're a parent. You know what this is like. For sure. And yeah. uh, we try to teach her how to make good choices. And if mm. she can do that and work hard and be nice to people, she'll be all right. A lot of human values as well as that process of personal accountability. Right. Absolutely. That's great. I yeah. think also um, with parenting, it's, real, it's, it's difficult to put yourself into a category because each kid is different and your child can have a very different personality than you. Um, with our daughter, she's more of a kind of an artsy free spirit. I have no desire to ever go to art class. I mean, she tells me my art sucks. It does suck. I'm not an artist. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, clearly I'm not drawing things for a living, um, but her brain works in a very different way than my brain. And as a parent, it's my job to not tell her how I think it should be done based on the way that I'm thinking and feeling about something. It's my job to bring out the best in her. And that I think is a challenge as well to accept someone else that's different, but bring out the best in them, even though you are not wired that way. I think oh, that, that's that so I good. think that's a challenge. Yeah. So that's that's been a, that's been something. Too. And we only have one child, so yeah. we don't have anything to compare. You have multiple children, right. and yeah. so uh, when you see the the diversity among siblings, right? Mm -hmm. and, and people always look to the parents, right? Oh, bad kid must have bad parents. Good kid must have good parents. Well, I know families of four, right? Four children where a couple of the kids turned out outstanding, and a couple of the kids not so much. Same parenting, same rules, same house, everything the same, and so. If it's all on the parents, 
then why don't the siblings all turn out the same? Absolutely. And they don't. And they don't because of that diversity among people. And at Mm -hmm. the end of the day, while I think we can shape our children, I think that most parents probably believe they have a bigger impact than they actually do on the outcome of their child's life. I think that's true. You know, in a kind of an esoteric vein, and, you know, that's some of the things that I follow, right? I like to just follow these different lines of thought. I heard once that we as parents, we're basically guides that Mm -hmm. we've been entrusted. So they don't belong to us like we think they do. We were just entrusted to help guide them the best that we could and then let them make their choice and trod their path. And our job is to support and nurture to the best we can while we're on our journey to do our thing. And they become, for me anyway, my kids have become my biggest teachers as much as I've ever probably taught them. It's it's an interesting dynamic. It's a weird phenomenon when you're child teaches you something. Our kid's getting to that age where it starts to happen just a little bit. You know, she'll she'll say something that we're like, huh, that's better than what we were thinking. Or, right. you know, that's yeah. that's a really great way to approach that. She's a very kind soul so far yeah. in life. We hope that doesn't change <laughs> I'm in sure the teenage years. Um, but uh, <laughs> she she's very loving, very caring, and, and very altruistic and and in some ways better than we are in that. And when we feel that, it's it's nice. It's that a, is It's a cool nice. feeling. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we've talked some about parenting. How do you manage the structure of parenting with both of your really, really insanely busy schedules? Because Colleen, you head up our division here for employment. Brian, you're the managing partner. Tons of decisions with growth and expansion, all the things we do in managing people. How do you, how do you work that into, for anybody who's listening that's a, a two- uh, two-person working family working with their child or children. How do you manage that? Well, I think like most parents, we drink a lot. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well. Actually, I'm kidding. I, I, I actually don't drink very often at all. Um, you know, it, it's it's tough because we don't want to be absentee parents. And we've both committed to this idea that, you know, we're not going to be the, the lawyers that come home at eight o'clock at night and leave at six in the morning and not spend time as a family. And luckily here at Ramos Law, family is the top value. It's the top value in the organization, right, from Dr. Ramos himself. And so there hasn't been any pressure on us to um, to be those types of lawyers that are here all the time. Now, we work a lot, but we flex our schedules. I work a lot at night. My wife works a lot in the early morning hours sometimes, um, some weekends, but we always find the time to... Um, eat dinner as a family. Cook in the kitchen is important at our house. We clean together. Um, my daughter skis and um, as she's getting older, we're able to do more stuff because she's getting right. bigger. But time management is definitely a challenge. The kid, I don't, you, the parents out there listening that have multiple children, my hat goes off to you because we have one and boy, it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. She has activities five, six days a week um, yeah. right now until Ramos Law headquarters is operational up there in North Glen. We moved residentially, as you know, to be closer to the new office and hasn't been ready and as fast as we'd hoped. So we're commuting 40, 45 minutes a day each way right now, both of us. And and that's put a huge compression on us as a family. But um, so far we've made it work. Right. And Colleen, what, I've noticed that you've made some adaptations to, to get that done, still be the yeah. present mom, because I know your desire and Brian as well. The, the cool thing I love about you two, you do want to <laughs> both participate greatly. And you and I, Brian, have had conversations where you're saying, hey, it's not worth it for me not to have that time. So that comes first. And Colleen, as a mom, the connection yeah. that any mom and daughter has is is exceptional. So I would say that it uh, 
working working around work <laughs> with your kid, it changes as they develop. I would say that when she was an infant, it was a lot easier because they sleep more, they nap. That nap, losing that nap time midday was a major loss for everyone <laughs> in right. our family. We used to um, love the naps. <laughs> we love the nap. We were like two hours, score. Um, it's you the fastest would, I mean, two hours in the world though. I know, you can't go or do anything. You're like, everyone to be quiet. But um, you can certainly get a lot of work done in two hours. I mean, you can, you know, flex the schedule, right? Um, and then as they're, you know, the smaller they are, their bedtimes are a little bit more on the earlier end. They're not, you know, pushing to stay up. Um, obviously you're having different discussions with an eight-year-old than you are an infant. You know, it's just a different kind of world. So I would say when she was little, it was more just working around like her nap schedules and there was more sleep time built in. I think it's actually getting more challenging now because she is older. She's up more, you know, she's interactive and she has activities. And I would say that change really happened right around kindergarten, first grade where, you know, I am now a soccer mom and I am that person that's like, why do we have soccer practice at five? Right. right. Why? <laughs> when we have all these working parents on the team, why am I driving in rush hour traffic at four o'clock trying to get to the soccer practice at five? My only point is, is that you have to build around it. So um, for me personally, I'm more, I think, I think for parents, it's just about who you are, knowing who you are and how you can operate well. Um, with the least amount of sleep or the most amount of caffeine or whatever it takes to get through it. And for me, I'm a morning person. So I would rather wake up at three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, you know, and hammer out work if I really need to get something done, opposed to being up at night all night. Right. So for me, I just adjust that way. So knowing yourself and yeah. where your strength zones are in operation of time. Yeah. And I will say that the technology is helpful too. Um, and the firm's been great about that. That is really helpful for working parents, especially working moms. You know, I can create a hotspot on my phone. I can work during soccer practice, right? So if I'm going to soccer, I'm sitting in my car working, I'm waving. Yay, great job, honey. And mm. then back to work. So there are ways to fit it in. I think you just have to be very committed to doing it. I will also say that... Um, you know, I go and hide in my office. You know, I like talking to people. Now, I'm is that really your home social. office or your office here? Both. I okay. hide each and everywhere I can. So when I start my work day, I'm committed to my work day. Like I, I, it's nice to say hi to people and say hello. But I, I think over the years I've cut down on a lot of that like office chit chat mm -hmm. because I need to be focused. I need to get through what time I have allotted for it. It's almost scheduled, right? So focus, that becomes yes. really, really critical that you block time or you do some sort of time management yes. system where there's a time to interact with your team. There's a time to get your business done. And then there's a time for your daughters. Like, and I think that the interesting thing, and, and this is something that I really worked through with as our kids grow, because our kids, of course, are you know now 23 to 34. But um, when they would be in different practices, there was a time when I knew I needed to be present in that practice right. or, or that game, especially games. I was always there practices. Sometimes I would drop them off and I would go to the bookstore, right? right? Where I could just get that done because they weren't looking for my support, but understanding where the child, our child is saying, mommy, daddy, I, I want to show you, I want to perform for you. Right. That was something that was really important. And I sense that you guys do that a lot in, the little things, not just the sporting things, but the dinners and the teaching stuff. And, and Brian, I know you were big, big martial artists and spent a lot of time and, and excelled in that deal. And you're teaching her some lessons through that, right? Through the yeah. martial arts training that you did to help her in some ways. Why don't you well, share she that? She trains formally now. Well, she's on a break because oh, okay. we take a break from martial arts while she does soccer and we've finished soccer and we're going back into martial arts. And so she's 
started her formal training. She's had her first test. So she's a yellow belt now. And, you know, I'm really passionate about martial arts. As you know, I suffered some injuries uh, that prevent me from kind of going full out like I'd want to. But, you know, as a father raising um, a young woman here in, in America where, unfortunately, um, she's at risk. Uh, I absolutely insist that she stays in this until I'm satisfied that she can defend herself. Mm. That's uh, she knows that I've told her that it's not, and we don't force our kid into things. She actually loves it so far, which has been great. But this is one of those things where it's not. It's one of those things where Daddy's saying you got to do it. You got to do it because um, I don't want to send her off to college someday and not have her be in a position where she can protect herself. And she mm. might need to. I hope she never does, knock on wood. But if she ever needs to, then I want her to be a formidable pre formidable presence out there. And, yeah. and the other thing that comes along with martial arts training, and it certainly did for me, is it, it changes more than just your ability to defend yourself. There's a sense of honor and integrity uh, that comes along with, with studying a traditional, uh, it's called Japanese or Asian art. She's in a Korean art um, that carries over and you join kind of a brotherhood and sisterhood of people that, that share that bond, that warrior mentality, that, um, that thick skin that you need to get through life that she's going to need to get through all this social media nonsense that she's going to endure as she grows up. And I hope she gets that benefit from it as well. Not just the physical aspects, but the mental strengthening and conditioning that comes along with that. The ability to fight pain, for example, is something that I learned in the arts and, I hope that happens for her, but I trained as an adult, so she's eight. So we'll see how right. she comes through uh, the system as as a young girl, as opposed to me. I was in my thirties when I started training. That that's so interesting. What yeah. I what I like about that in the sports um, is that I think that we, as a cultural here in the United States, have a tendency to treat kids in in the school setting. You know, they're brought up through school um, that if you're a good girl or a a good boy, right? You're doing things like people tell you to do. And I think that that only works only on a, a certain certain set of facts. And I think that um, we also need to be encouraging young people to be questioning things or not necessarily following people just to be good or labeled good. Um, and going to what Brian said, the ability to defend yourself or just question your question situations or have gut instincts about things and, and not necessarily feel like you have to do something to be a good person, um, to have that inner quality about yourself, to be able to say, Hey, this doesn't feel right. This person doesn't seem right to me. This isn't an okay situation for me. I'm going to walk away or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take care of myself and protect myself if I have to. And right. I think that that's a really important thing. I think that, you know, just, I remember growing up as a, as a girl, we're taught, you know, not really to be aggressive or, you know, we're taught more to just kind of go along with the flow, you know, not really challenge. And, and I'm just hoping that a lot of that's changing now mm. with the way that people are thinking about, um, about women and, and raising women. But that's something certainly that's very important to me for our daughter, that she is challenging things and questioning things. And if she doesn't feel right about something that it's okay that she doesn't feel right about that. And we want her to act in a way that she feels is appropriate. Right. So essentially instilling confidence. Yep. And I think that's right. a, a confidence, self-respect, you know, right. right. And that's something Standing that we on your own two feet. That's right. right. We all, no, I, that. I don't disagree. Yeah. 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 Sure. So instilling that from, from youth through sports or through anything, right. And your parenting style. Mm -hmm. And even for me, when do I have what it takes if I see something? Am I confident enough to, to stand up and right. say, yes, I support it or no, I don't or do whatever. I think that's a, 
it's it's a probably the number one character trait that if we could all do that, just be confident and then combine that with knowing what's right for us. Now all of a sudden it's game changer. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's my hope for her is that she feels that within herself, that she knows that she has herself to rely on and that she can feel good about that and be confident about herself and how she acts in life. Well, I, I think we've shared with parents, any parent listening to this, a lot that they could get from your experience, from my experience. And I think the next level that makes sense for us to talk about is how you guys now in a relationship interact because relationships aren't between two people, aren't about the kids. That when they get about the kids, then the relationship kind of gets messed up, right? At least that was my experience. Yeah. Um, how do you guys navigate the waters of being a married <laughs> couple, both very busy, both interacting, especially in the same field? And I do eventually want to get to how you guys met because, you know, oh, that's a story. <laughs> there's a lot of chiropractors. I will frame this, me being trained as a chiropractor. When I told my chiropractor I was getting married in chiropractic school, he said, I wish you the best of luck, but more than likely this isn't going to work. Yeah. And I said, why? Why is that? Now, keep in mind at the time I'm 21 years old. So there's a lot of reasons why it wouldn't work. Well, but that fair. being said, yeah. he said to me, it's interesting when you go into chiropractic school, you're a student. The day you graduate, you're a doctor. And oftentimes it's hard for the spouse, whether it's a male or a female, it doesn't matter, to, to transcend mentally and emotionally with that other person so that they it can quickly be left behind as the doctor's blank, right? Wife, right. husband, sure. partner, whatever. Um, and so and if, if they typically get married in chiropractic school, it tends to be a hard time. And then if you get too many doctor-doctor relationships, and they don't understand the business together, God forbid they work together, then yeah. things can happen too. I've seen that a lot. I don't know what the statistics are in lawyers getting married, but in, in chiropractors, <laughs> high rate of divorce between chiropractors get married unless it's their, uh, I mean, getting divorced unless it's their second marriage, then they tend to do a lot better. Yeah, I, I think that's probably safe to say for us. I mean, we both were married before. Um, both picks obviously didn't work out very well. <laughs> Weren't the brightest picks. Um, but we hope that they are doing well in their life Absolutely. without us. Absolutely. I, I definitely wish nothing but the best. Um, but I would agree with it. I think that um, there's a lot of change in development that goes on in your early 20s. Um, and I think that to make decisions about who you're going to spend the rest of your life with at you know, in my case, my early twenties, um, was not a smart decision. Cause I was really figuring out who I was and mm-hmm. I didn't really know who I was. Um, and it's difficult to pick somebody who's great for you. If you're not really understanding who you are fully at that point, I think that, uh, you get that kind of feeling about yourself more in your thirties. And I think that's where a little bit more of the stability kind of comes from. So I think that maybe that's it. Law school is pretty stressful for most people. So I think that has a lot to do with it too. And then when you start working in law, you know, a lot of traditional firms, our firm is is very good at work-life balance, but a lot of firms are not. And, you know, a lot of new lawyers are working crazy hours and they're away from their families and their spouses. And if they're not, if they're spouse or their families, you know, aren't familiar with how it kind of works, it can be very difficult um, because then you get the question of why are you always working? Why are you always away? Why are you always at the law office when you can, you know, be working on your laptop or computer or whatnot? You know, in response, the young lawyers like, well, my partners need to see me. I need to be able to learn and interact. The only way I can do that is by talking and being with people with more experience, I can't do that at home. And so, you know, there's that na- that natural friction that kind of can come from it, I think. But um, I don't know. 
who knows? I'm sure there's lots of successful lawyers that get married in their 20s. I, right. My friend Alicia Oaks, she got married very early. She's still married, very happily married. We'll give Alicia got, a big shout I out I know. There. She got married. She <laughs> had kids. She had a baby right before she took the bar exam. I mean, they're successful. They've been married like forever. I don't know how long. Really long time though. So anyway. That's great. And, and what do you think, Brian? How do you guys navigate the the dual, busy, important status, working, all that stuff when it comes to keeping your relationship fresh and and awesome? Mm, that's a good question. I don't think we're any different than any other couple out there because mm -hmm. most of the families out there have two people working nowadays. Uh, I know there's still some stay-at-home parents out there, but it's becoming less and less common because, quite frankly, families can't afford it, um, especially here in Colorado where the cost of living is just sky high. Mm -hmm. uh, so Colleen and I, we, we do a couple things to... Uh, stay close because uh, I think you guys hit on a point that isn't unique to lawyers. It's unique to existence. And that is as people age, uh, they grow and change. And whether it's with friends or family or a spouse, you can either grow and change together or you can grow and change apart. And I think that ends up turning into people hating each other and blaming each other for lots of things when in reality, they just don't have enough commonality or things headed in the same direction to maintain the connection they had in the past. That doesn't mean it's anybody's fault. It just happens. You know, if your spouse all of a sudden decides that they don't ever want to eat meat again, maybe you can adapt to that as a family and maybe you can't. Uh, if one spouse all of a sudden decides they want to walk away from religion and the other spouse is very religious, what does that do to a relationship, right? So those types of things, I think, are the relationship killers in the world and that people don't realize that because they're always looking to ascribe fault. This is failing because of you. This is not failing because of me, right? Anyone that's been divorced knows that drill. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, true that. Yeah, yeah so right. we all know that. Um, but as far as Colleen and I... Um, we do a couple of things. One thing we, we're pretty darn good at is going out on dates. And we've got an army of babysitters that we use that, that love our daughter. In fact, one of them is, is known Kess since she was a year old when we first moved here. And she drives all the way from South Littleton up to Erie to watch, wow. our, to watch yeah. our kids. And for those who are listening, that's a long way. It's, it's a, a really long, long way. way. She uh, yeah. is terrified to drive. She was actually a client of ours as well because she got in a car accident. And she doesn't take the freeway. So she takes back roads all the way up to our house. Yeah. Um, uh, to spend time with our kid whenever we ask her. And we have a few people like that in Kessa's life that are kind of like family because uh, my family's back in Detroit. Colleen's family is in Florida and Boston. So our daughter doesn't have much in the way of family contact here. And so we do that. And we do that on the regular. And another thing that Colleen and I have committed to, which you already know this, is that we travel. And we take at least one trip a year, just us. It's mommy and daddy only. And then the grandparents fly into town to watch the kid and yeah. they love it. Um, last year, we did a beautiful cruise in the Mediterranean. <laughs> um, this coming year is our 10-year wedding anniversary. We're going to Hawaii. And so that um, is something that's really important. Colleen comes from a long line of travelers. Uh, her, her grandfather had traveled extensively through Eastern Europe. Her father has been all over the world. And even Colleen has been all over the world. Me, I was a little lesser traveled, uh, being the blue-collar kid between the two of us. Um, but I love it as well. And so that's something that we do. Um, we're going to New Orleans in a few days after Christmas. And and so we, the other thing that we've done with that is we actually have tri trips matched, mapped out for the next several years. And yeah. what we have found and the research actually supports this is that the planning has just as much psychological and mental health benefit as the trip itself. 
Yeah. They're actually they work on that together. They yeah. work on it together. Side. Right. So, so cool. Yeah. So yeah. in two years, I think we're going to, I don't know, London or something. And <laughs> we will hop on the computer and do research about restaurants in London. Right. Yep. And so that, that planning mm -hmm. aspect of our trips is always ongoing. And it's always something that we can use to get excited about, connected with. And it's funny because I always used to be the spontaneous, let's just go on a trip. Now I plan the hell out of these things. And we have these massive itineraries, lots of research, all the stuff is available online to, to find the best restaurant. Um, when we went to Paris, I must have I must have read 200 restaurants before I finally picked one and she loved it. Yeah, and it was, so, it was and what part do you play? Where do you really focus on the- She goes on the trips. <laughs> I go, yeah, I like the trips. Um, no, I, yeah, I like it. For me, um, I really like looking at the culture of the people and I like, whenever we, we take a trip and we go somewhere, I like to ask myself a couple of questions. First of all, what do they do really well? What mm. do they do well that I- Interesting, as a culture? Yeah, just culturally, what do you do well? What are you doing that I haven't experienced yet or seen in my lifetime or that I experienced here in Colorado, the United States? Um, what do you what do you do really well? What's really something that you, you've captured and you as a society do, and it's, it seems to be, be like a better way of doing things. I think that's really important. Um, I think it's important to kind of look at their history and where they've, where they've been and where they are now. I think that's always neat to look at. And then the next question is, is what if there, there's something they don't do well, what is it and why is it? Like, I, I like to ask myself that question because, you know, I think we, um, in the United States have a tendency to be taught very much what it's like to be here and not necessarily what it's like to be in other places in the world. And um, I think it's a good question to ask, what are, what are they doing well and what are they not doing well? And how can you take away from that and use a piece of that in your own life to make you know, your own experience different? Have you, could you give our audience any examples from all your trips where someone just did something well, where you were able to like, wow, and you can incorporate that and maybe someone that did something like, ooh, yeah. I, I don't want to do that. I identified that. So this is a funny example. Where was that? It was, we went to, when we went to Iceland, it was, was it the airport in Iceland with that? You know, they had the containers and it was, security was like a well-oiled machine. So you know how we have the bins and you have to, everybody has to put the bins and they have to move the bins and it's like this whole thing. And nobody, no matter what, everybody knows how it goes, but the line is long because it's always somehow, a disaster. Somehow, some way, somebody doesn't understand. <laughs> right, when you're going works. through security, right, yeah. you're on your way into yeah, this. So is, you are know. you talking about the automatic yeah. thing? Yeah, they had these automatic. Yeah. Well, you went to Iceland. You probably saw it. It's it. fantastic. Yeah. It, like, it, it just, it's like this machine. And it, it makes it so it's idiot proof, actually. You you walk up and you're like, duh, I put my stuff in this. And it moves. <laughs> and then you it goes with you. And then it flips around and it recycles itself. I thought that was the coolest thing. I thought getting through that airport was just amazing. That was really fun. Right, I remember. Um, I, yeah, I really like that. I really, um, I don't know. It's hard. I've been so many great places over the years. So, I mean, um, but just culturally, like some of the warmth that you see in people, mm -hmm. um, like I really see, like when we go to Italy, I always feel like culturally they're very kind, very happy people, very kind people, just very accepting people. Um, I felt that in Ireland too. I, everybody in Ireland was like, be Irish. I am Irish, but they were all like, be Irish. They didn't care if you were Irish or not. Very just warm and accepting. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so it's, it's neat to see. And then there was some neat, you know, I have to say, you know, on what are they not doing well side of it when we went to Paris, we had a great time in Paris. We really had a great experience in Paris, but then um, and the prime example of what we don't really see in the United States, um, you know, we're about to leave Paris. It's our, we're 
heading towards the airport and you see all these people thousands of people living in tents because immigration right under the freeway right under oh, the wow. freeway the entire colony basically it is yeah. just it's... it makes you heartbroken and sick and you know you hear on the news immigration's an issue in europe and people are very contentious about it and we saw both sides of it we saw people like who were french who were pissed that people were moving into their country and then we see these people living in tents and they're leaving because they are getting murdered in their countries and they cannot stay there and you it's heartbreaking and you say well what what are we not doing well and then that piece i think for me it was like what are we not doing well as like civilization like humanity what are we not doing well that we have people who feel like they can't live in their country because they're going to get killed wow and they're living now in a tent outside of paris on a, basically on a freeway because there is nothing there's nothing for them and they have and nothing that's something yeah and it's sad and, and you kind of say, okay, as a, you know, as a race, what can we do to fix that type of a thing? Like, Absolutely. how can we fix that? We got to come together for those kind of things. Right. And we can't just say, okay, well, them, they're the problem. I just, yeah. That's That's, amazing. that's why the history piece, I, I liked history. I would have been a great history professor. <laughs> that's There's a still time. That's a different conversation. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, it's very reminiscent of pre-World War too, where, where people were like, I don't want to be that, or these people are the problem, or, you know, where you're, you're picking a group of people and you're demonizing them. And I think that can be very dangerous. And so that, what are we not doing well, really just kind of felt big, especially right. seeing that many people just completely impoverished with nothing, just sitting there intense. It's heartbreaking. When we were in South Africa last year, my wife and I, it was amazing. These, they call them townships and these townships are nothing but anywhere from boxes to uh, corrugated tin. Mm -hmm. And if one goes up in flames, they'll lose thousands of them because <gasps> they are piled next to each other with right. millions of people living yeah. in them. And, and there's so many, um, you know, there's just so many opportunities for us to look to that. We get sometimes caught up in our world and we're all busy, right? Sure. Everyone in this room right. is really busy. But at the same time, if there's a global stage or something we connect to bigger than ourselves, I think it makes sense to invest in that so that we can just make this place a little bit better. Not everyone's meant to solve that crisis, but there's plenty of crisis for all right. for all to jump into at some level. Right. Yep. And, you know, speaking of, of crisis, there's a, a crisis that comes up in every relationship called conflict. Oh, yeah. And I'm really interested. You think we yeah, fight? What? Well, here's my as thing. Here, here's what I got to ask you. And that's the best part of this. As two lawyers who are trained black belt ninjas in arguing, how do you guys deal with a conflict if there's an issue? Do you <laughs> Does the lawyer hat come off where you're like, ooh, this is going to get nasty if I keep the lawyer hat on? Or, or do you use some of those negotiating skills? How do you guys oh, navigate that as a couple? Uh, well, so, we talked about survival parenting. Yeah, uh, and survival, <laughs> survival marriage. marriage. There's survival yeah. marriage I think as well. It's the same uh, for us. And we're like any other couple. We have arguments and some go well and some don't. <laughs> and um, when you have two, two pretty thick-headed personality types that don't like to back down, um, yeah, it can get, it can get kind of ugly sometimes, but at the same time, <laughs> um, we are definitely, uh, a relationship of equals. And so, um, you know, Colleen's my partner and my teammate. She's not my wife in that sense, in that traditional sense where I, I don't see her as someone that reports to me or has to listen to me or any of those types of things. We're equals in our relationship. And so when we have conflict, that's front and center in a good way. Right. Because she knows that her voice is equal to mine in the house and might make it harder to resolve a conflict because of that. But when both people in any relationship, whether it's intimate or a friendship, 
uh, feel like their voices are heard, um, then there's that sense of equality and that sense of fairness, even if you don't necessarily like the outcome at that particular time, as opposed to those relationships where you feel like, you know, your voice isn't heard or your opinion doesn't matter. Um, because I think those relationships are the ones that are primed to fall. Absolutely. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point that person whose voice isn't heard is going to speak up and is going to unload however long it's been that they felt like they hadn't been heard. And that's a recipe for disaster. So I encourage Colleen to come at me with whatever she's got, whenever she's got it. <laughs> and she uh, she has got it. I've seen her. And, I've seen uh, her. So uh, <laughs> and, uh, she's a formidable uh, adversary at times. <laughs> but I I love her dearly, and uh, you know I wouldn't have her any other way. I think um, what has been what's different in terms of being married versus law, right? The adversarial kind of thing that you have in in law um, is that when in law you want to win, especially as litigators. So, you know, I'm a trial lawyer, so obviously I want to win. You want to win for your client. You want to do the best for your client. It's it's chess sometimes to outmatch the other side, right? They're smart, so it's fun. They're smart too, right? So you're up against somebody who's a very smart person as well. And so that, that kind of that process, that adversarial process or the chess match, so to speak, there's some fun in that. I mean, our brains are obviously wired that way because we do this for a living. Well, I didn't join the debate team because I'm a pacifist. Right. <laughs> let's, let's put it that's that true. Way. That's true. <laughs> but my only point is in marriage, um, in conflict, there's really, a, if somebody is a winner, there really isn't a win for the relationship because you can't have a winner, Does if that makes sense. Right, you're so, a teammate. You're coming yeah. to exactly. a decision so collectively. The only way you win is if the relationship wins. Right. So there you and go. And so that's kind of, I think that that's been something that... Um, that we yeah, work we on. We work on. We work on that. <laughs> and you said that simultaneously, we which is it. so beautiful. It's yeah. just a process. Well, we work together too. Yeah. And so um, well, that makes it more complicated and complex. Um, it's a little harder on Colleen than it is for me, because as I mentioned before, I grew up in a family business. And for me, family and business were always so closely intertwined that there was never a distinction between the two. It was always one and the same. Right? I worked with my grandparents, my cousins, my uncles, my brother, everyone you can think of. And then we had all those family dynamics plus a bunch of hot-headed Sicilians working in a hot kitchen. Okay, so lots of conflict, lots of fights. What could possibly um, go wrong? There's Not plenty me. of those relationships that have been completely <laughs> severed at this point in time. Um, and you know, without that business, those relationships would probably still be alive and well. And so I've learned a lot from my past in how to you know, work with family so that it doesn't destroy your family. And Colleen doesn't have those experiences under her belt. And so um, it, it does create those challenges uh, because a work issue is a work issue and a family issue is a family issue. But they blend sometimes, right? Yeah. Because right. I don't separate my time in my brain. I mean, for me, my work time and my family time is all just part of one big soup. And it's hard for me to dissect it out. Colleen's pretty patient about that, which is nice because she knows I care about this firm deeply. And she knows that um, it, it's easy. It, it would be easy to look at my life and see, well, you know, sometimes Brian's not putting his family first. He's putting the law firm first. In Brian's brain, that is putting his family first. Right. right? Because he's putting the business first to make sure he can take care of his family. Right. That's and right. so, and Colleen understands and appreciates that. But like any family, sometimes you just want your family with you doesn't matter Absolutely. what job you have or where you are. My daughter doesn't care about Ramos Law. She loves Ramos Law. She loves Joe. She loves everybody here. She wants her dad. And, yeah. and I understand that. And so that's the part that if there's anything complicated about it, it's, well, 
how can we take a work issue that whether she's upset about something or I'm upset about something, process that as professionals as we could if we weren't married and then get back to family life. And so sometimes good. that's a challenge. Mm -hmm. That is so good. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it, it's, did you have something on oh, that? Oh, no, I was just going to say it. And I will say with, you know, what helps us be, um, you know, keeping our heads above water with this whole parenting thing that we do um, and having a relationship with one another, the technology, it can be a curse at times because you are highly accessible. Yeah, connected so, all the time. Right. Yeah. And having boundaries, I think, so that you can kind of go back to family space is important. So. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not so good at that. <laughs> we, we all struggle with that that's in, in this firm. It seems like that's, we're all connected to the vision and the mission right. so much that it's it's really challenging to to draw those boundaries. But I think that's a great point. Colleen is saying, here's when enough is enough for now. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. Or I can't really put a dent into this right now. So I'm going to spend some time with my husband and we're going to research a trip or we're just going to watch a movie. Well, there's two kinds of workaholics that I've come in contact with in my life. And there's the one that we all know, which is the miserable person that works all the time, feels constant pressure, always worried about their career, um, never has any peace, any inner peace. That's, that's the kind of workaholic that you see in law all the time. Okay. There's any lawyers out there that are listening. We have one of the lowest job satisfaction rates of any profession. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. It's, yeah. Less heard than that. A, it's less than a third. They taught us that in law school. And then there's the workaholics like me and, and like Dr. Ramos and like yourself. And that is, we just love it. And we don't feel like we work all that hard mm. because we love it. And I've had other law jobs in my past where I didn't love them as much as this one, where I worked half as much as I do now. And I was miserable. And I felt like I was working all the time, even though I wasn't. And here, you know, my energy has been awakened. Uh, my passion for what I do is, is so clear to me now that even a 12-hour day doesn't feel like a long day to me anymore. But from my family's perspective, it's a really long day for them. Right. Right. And they're not able to sense what I'm feeling, which is, man, I'm just crushing it and loving it, even though I still miss them and love them. And so that pulling away from something as a workaholic because you love it and you have that fire and you have that passion feels very different than pulling away uh, as a negative workaholic, right? Because those people can't wait to go on vacation. Right. Now, or Friday or five o'clock right. or whatever. Exactly. And I love to travel with my wife, but there's always a part of me that doesn't want to leave because I really, really, truly love being in this firm and doing what I do. And that's a good thing, but it can be a bad thing for those around you. And I have to, you know, truthfully, I have to do better at that and I, being mindful of it. I really think that's a, a great transition point because you do two different things. And if I could describe in layman's terms calling what you do, it's you protect the rights and the lives of workers in the employment arena. I'd love to hear of all the law that you could have chosen and all the things that you could have done. Why that law? What does that bring to you? What's the the your passion connection to that form of law? Um, it, it's actually based on me a little bit and my experiences with employment, just being you know, a female worker. Um, and it it is it's nice to see things changing. I think that, um, unfortunately, I mean, based on what I do for a living, I obviously still have a job. So sadly, really, you know, awful things happen to people. But in employment, I personally felt that there were moments where I was not treated fairly as a, you know, as a worker, even though I knew I was, I was performing and I was doing well and I was, you know, giving it my all and performing as well as my male peers. Um, and so I think it was that experience that kind of drove me towards it. Um, I've always really felt passionate about helping people 
um, especially women's rights issues have always been a passionate thing for me. Um, and so that's, that's primarily why I was interested in employment law. Um, and I will have to tell you some of the stuff I hear is it's just crazy stuff all day, every day. And it's kind of that difference to it is. In fact, weren't you called to testify in, in state, uh, state Congress here on employment issues as it related to women's rights? Yeah. So yeah. What, yeah. what was that about? I, I don't remember all the specifics, but I remember you had to go down there for something. So, yeah. So I, so I helped with the, um, the law that helped people get their, um, their employee files, but then also women's rights issues in terms of being probably, um, just treated equally in employment. Is that um, the focus of, of what you're doing now on the employment side? Is it predominantly women's rights issues or is it broader than it's that? It's broader than that. So we, you know, I'm lucky I get to kind of do it all as an employment attorney. So we help a lot of small employers, which I think is great. Um, I love getting calls from small employers because that says to me, hey, there are employers out there that really care about their employees and they want to get it right and they want to do it right. And they're calling someone like me who typically helps employees, right? And they want to make sure that they're doing things by the book so that they can treat their employees fairly. I think a lot of the presumption is that the employer is always bad. I will say with my experience, I've seen it both ways. Sometimes they are bad, but sometimes you have some really good hearted people out there who really do want their employees to be happy. Um, and sometimes you have bad employees. And sometimes you have bad employees. <laughs> it, it does happen. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you get a little bit of both. Um, but anyway, yeah. So we, so we, we're fortunate enough to do that. We, we do a lot of work with, um, severance and documents and negotiating contracts for people. So if someone is asked to leave a job or is leaving a job, then if they're entitled to some sort of, um, compensation out the door, you help negotiate that. Right. That yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times people will be, um, higher level employees will be offered a severance package to walk away. And so we help with that type of work. Um, on the flip side, we write those for employers as well um, to help employees move on with their lives and have some money to take away before they, you know, to give them time to get a new job. Um, so that type of work, a lot of employment contract related work. And then then every once in a while, we do get the just the discrimination cases where I've been discriminated against because of X, Y, and Z, and we need help with that. What do I do with this? And how do I navigate my employment? I want to report it, but I'm scared I'm going to get fired. And so we, we get a lot of that as well. Well, you know, you brought something to my attention that I hadn't really thought about. And maybe I should start thinking about it now that I'm in my, you know, 50s. <laughs> and, and that is that there are a lot of higher level folks that it ends up turning into an ageism kind of thing. Sure. Right. Where they're being potentially discriminated against because either their salary is too high for their age when someone could come in at a lower rate that's younger and that's where a lot of these severance packages issues come, right? Like that was new for me. I never even thought about it. Right. Yeah. Typically you see a severance offered if the employer has something that they want the employee to give up, meaning a legal right. They want them to give up and with highly compensated employees or older workers who are making more than their younger you know, younger people. Um, the replacements. Yeah, the replacements. <laughs> the replacements. Or the people who are, you know, just more experienced. There's oftentimes, you know, there's more involved. They Those types of people have knowledge of the business that the, the employer doesn't want them to go walk away with and talk about necessarily, or they don't want them to maybe compete against them um, moving forward. So there's lots of different kind of aspects to all of that. And we're lucky enough to help with that. So that's, that's awesome. And we do, we do a little bit of civil rights work too. Um, and then, what, what, how gosh. would you define civil rights work? So um, we 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 do a little bit of 1983 work where we have um, cases where 
um, people have been injured or harmed due to police acts, oh, okay. which is is pretty interesting work. The, the, I find it interesting just because of the area of law. It's very narrow area of law. Um, what else do we do? Gosh, we do a little of Well, everything. another area that I think we should probably touch on that, yeah. that, you know, has always just been impressive in the work that you do is that with regard to people with disabilities. And so Colleen has some close family members that have some disabilities. Um, and, and it's an area that she's really passionate about making sure that those folks are treated fairly in the workplace, um, that disabilities are accommodated. Um, I know that's a big buzzword in that world. It is. And, um, you know, when that type of work comes in, it's usually pretty sad because it's it's someone with a disability that's really trying to do their best to contribute and, and to be part of an organization and often are just asking for the very simplest or mildest accommodation to really excel for the company. And the pushback and the resistance that you see from the employer side for, for these folks is, is sometimes... Um, it's just really disheartening to see. And uh, I'm, I never see her more fired up. Uh, maybe the women's rights issue or disability issue or, or a woman with a disability issue would probably be the the, the ultimate. Right. But um, I just know that Colleen's been very passionate about that ever since I met her. And um, it's it's really great work that she does. It's it's relatively rare um, to see those cases just because by percentage, they don't those folks don't make up a huge population of the workforce. Um, but anyone out there that, that knows of an issue like that, they should always reach out to us with questions because Colleen knows this area of law forward and backwards. In fact, she did something quite crazy. So we all go to law school to become lawyers and you get a degree called a JD uh, or Juris Doctor is what it's called. Uh, but the craziest of attorneys like my wife go back to school and earn an additional degree called an LLM, which is essentially called a master's degree for attorneys. And she did that while working full-time as an attorney um, and earned a, a degree um, from my undergrad alma mater, Wayne State University in Detroit, um, in labor and employment law. And, and wow. it's one of only three programs in the country that has it. And I believe she basically had straight A's through that all while working full-time. And so Super that's how specialized. she- yeah. yeah, very, and that's yeah, how she segued into the labor and employment world. She went and actually got the education first, um, and was doing a little bit of work in the background at her old firm. Right, um, and that's why she's just uh, such a high level expert in this area. She not wow. only has the experience, but she has the formal training as well that very few lawyers in the country have. Wow. So unlike probably other um, disciplines in law, you learn all areas of law. You learn enough to be proficient in a bar exam. So that's what law school is for. Law school is not to teach you law. It's to teach you how to think about law. So you can go take a bar exam. And then once you pass your bar exam, then you will pick the area of law that you want to practice in. And um, oftentimes it can be kind of difficult for lawyers to, to try new things because if they're not getting that type of work from their firms or they're not getting those types of cases coming through the door, they're not getting experience that that area of law may be something that they wanted to try. And so um, with me, I was fortunate enough to get some employment work. I really enjoyed it and then was able to go back and get the degree, which was nice. So fantastic. Yeah. So people that, I mean, basically if someone's in your stable of clients, they know that they have an expert because that's, there's not, it doesn't sound like there's that many people that have that certification or extra yeah, education. They No, not really. Especially, um, it's pretty rare for practicing lawyers. You hear a lot about um, masters in laws or LLMs for people who earn their law degrees in different countries. And then they come to the United States and get an LLM so that they can be proficient here in the United States. Um, but our program was really dedicated to practicing lawyers who were employment attorneys. So we weren't from other 
countries. We were all from the United States and we were working um, with practicing attorneys in that area. So my labor law class was taught by somebody at the NLRB who does board law all day, every day. And it was fantastic because, you know, we had all been out in practice. What is the NLRB? The National Labor Relations Board. (laughs) There you got to get that in there. Yeah, that was coming next. That was my next question. got all kinds of fancy terms of art that Uh, nobody knows what they are. (laughs) Um, but my only point is that who knows board law better than somebody who is, you know, who, who actually helps with that kind of law. And so those are the people that we were learning for. And it was really nice. And it was, you have a different perspective. You know, I'm sure you would agree after practicing and doing your thing for a couple of years, you get a different perspective on it. When you go back to school, your appreciation and able ability to learn is different. Absolutely. And Brian, I know besides being the managing partner, your specialty, if you will, it, like as a manager, do I have partner, a specialty still? You, you absolutely do. <laughs> you, right now, your specialty is helping us navigate how it is to be a law firm. Uh, I would call us maybe a, a power conference law firm to sure. use a sports metaphor, but that's your daily job. But you really excel in the personal injury area. What is it that really drew you to that, to people who've been injured in uh, accidents, that kind of thing? Well, I'd be lying if I told you I chose it uh, because I didn't. And um, it kind of happened to me accidentally and ended up being a perfect fit. And so when I was finishing up law school, like most uh, new attorneys, I needed a job. <laughs> and uh, I went to I was I went to Boston University for law school, but I was back in Michigan and I went to the dean of students at Wayne State Law School, which was my alma mater, where Colleen had gone for LLM. And I said, hey, I need a job. I talked to her for a bit. She goes, I know the perfect place for you. And she called an attorney named Jeff Myers right there in the office, sent me over there. He hired me as a summer clerk for 12 bucks an hour, um, which is what I made. And that firm was a a personal injury with a heavy emphasis on product liability uh, firm in Detroit. Um, I spent my early years litigating um, manufacturing defect claims against uh, the automotive manufacturers. These were big, you know, seven figure type cases where I was um, battling Ford's legal research and writing department as a first-year associate, and I had a blast. It was just so much fun to uh, fight the powers that be. If there's one of me, there's 10 of them on the other side kind of thing. And I off- and later just found that it was a perfect fit for who I was. I grew up in the service culture, and I grew up taking care of people. That's just part of my family values. That's part of who we are. We love service. We love to give to others. I still love serving food to others. Um, and working with injured people... Um, you get that satisfaction. As time marched on, the irony kicked in because I ended up injured. Um, As you know, I've had a bunch of surgeries in my life, a bunch of martial arts injuries in my life. I deal with chronic pain on a daily basis. And that um, not only does that help me connect with the clients that go through the same types of things, but it's helpful to the client as well because they're talking to somebody that understands it. And for those people out there that have been injured, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And those people that have never been injured or don't love someone that's been injured, they have no idea. Mm -hmm. And so it ended up quite by accident becoming a perfect fit for who I am as a person and and who I want to be. I like working for people. And the fact that I'm injured and working for injured folks is, I just think it's the way it's supposed to be. That's Uh, beautiful. And I still have a a flair, or not a flair, but a a passion for product liability litigation. Um, You wanted to learn how Colleen and I met. She was an asbestos defense attorney. I was an asbestos plaintiff's attorney and the rest is history. (laughs) Sparks Um, were flying uh, in the courtroom and then out out of the courtroom. And and they were, and that's how we met. And, um, (laughs) you know, the the firm is starting to get involved in some of that work with 
with Dr. Ramos is, you know, truly, he's, he's globally unique, meaning he, he's a singular talent on planet Earth. There are other lawyers out there that, that are doctors. In fact, I went to law school with a brain surgeon who was bored, um, and he decided <laughs> to go to law school. But there's no one out there like Dr. Ramos where, um, before he went to law school, of course, he's an emergency medicine physician, but because he has such an entrepreneurial spirit, during that time, he also owned and operated a series of about a dozen clinics in town. You know what they were. You were part of it yep. um, called Premier Care. And he literally took care of and treated thousands of accident victims, whether they're in car crashes or a slip and fall type of thing or uh, someone bit by a dog, whatever it is. And in the course of that experience, he was testifying as a medical doctor. Over, he's testified over 100 times. Um, and he was interfacing with attorneys course, we all know that left a bad taste in his mouth and, and he figured he could do it a little bit better and he does. <laughs> and so, you know, now that we have him, we feel like his his proper place in this world in, in, is to help police and safeguard the public from defective products that are manufactured in the medical sphere. Whether you're talking about a defective hip or you're talking about a pharmaceutical drug that is causing all types of negative things, we see that as the next step in our firm, and we are starting to get more and more involved in that. And of course, Colleen and I are both excited because we're both at heart product yeah, that's liability attorneys. Yeah. That's where we come from. Right. That's where we are. And that's a very specialized, intense area of the law because you're suing very large companies that don't like to pay money, and they send the very best and brightest legal teams on planet Earth to fight you. And that for us is the most fun. Wow. Well, we've got a lot of exciting stuff that you guys are doing. Thank you so much again for what you do for the community and the public. As we wind this up, I have one question for you sure. each. And Colleen, we'll start with you. Yeah, and go here first. it goes. That's right. <laughs> give, give Brian more time to think. So here's my question. Can you share with the audience either A, your number one philosophy of life or B, the best piece of advice ever given to you that you might be able to to transfer on. Hmm, that's a toughie. God. So so here's here's, a, here's an example. Like for me, if I had to, I get asked all the time from people that I may be interacting with, like, what's the key to either great life or success or whatever? And for me, if I have to pick one thing, it's being consistent, because we're all consistent. That might be we're consistent at being inconsistent. Sure. But it's a habit we already it's have. It's, life. Yeah. it's molding right. Right. that into the thing that you're trying to create or achieve or whatever, that consistency for me, that would be my number one piece of advice that I could give anyone. Find out what you want and then be consistent. Create the plan and be consistent operating the plan and you'll get there. So that would be an example of what mine might be. Mine actually, it's funny you say that. Mine actually is um, being a little bit more open to change and kind of letting things just kind of naturally happen. So um, for example, I, I'm part of my personality, part of what makes me really great at reading things and writing briefs and doing those types of things um, is can be a very fixed kind of mindset in that. And I, I feel like um, embracing kind of things that are outside of that or thinking of potential change or how you could do things better. I think that's where I strive to, to kind of make my mark, I guess, so to speak. Right, sure. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that's that's part of it. My resolution for 2019 was to just kind of like let things happen because I'm more of a like a planner and more precise kind of person. So um, in 2019, my goal was if you went to a restaurant and you didn't really know what you liked on the menu, you'd say to the server 
hey, what do you like best? And then just, or surprise me and have them bring it. Or if they say our cocktails are blah, blah, blah today, you say, okay, surprise me. Or, um, and then we send it back and yeah. we get something else. <laughs> and and then yeah. you get what you yeah. wanted all along. <laughs> but Or you go to your hairdresser and you're like, hey, I'm looking for something new. Just surprise me. I think that that was kind of a great gift for 2019 in terms of embracing change and doing things different. Because if I had picked for myself, I would have picked the same things over and over and over, over again. Um, and that doesn't really promote growth or change in a wow. person. I love and that. so letting go of the little things, the little decisions. Now, if it's a big decision, obviously I'm not going to leave that to chance, right? You know, if we have a big case, I'm not leaving that to chance. But does it really matter when I go to Starbucks, which latte I get? Surprise me. They're going to be, you know, they're about the same price. Surprise me. Maybe I'll try something new and like it. Um, he laughs because I am a very fixed kind of person. And I think that that was. He laughs because he hasn't seen her get anything different at Starbucks. Okay, well. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> I did. I tried that new peppermint one. That was I really, wasn't there. That was really sensational. <laughs> um, but in any case, so that was that I think if I had to create I love that it. would be it. I love it. So be just be open, open to yeah, different differences in people and things and enjoy and, it a little bit. And how about uh, Brian Calandra of the clan? <laughs> you asked Google. two questions. One was the, the, the second one was advice and the, the best piece, piece of advice right. you ever got yep. and or your number one philosophy on. Sure. Great yeah. Life. Okay. And I didn't need any time to think about it because he's just, this is a subject that's near and dear to me. And so I'm going to answer both questions because I'm, like I told, it was told an you and earlier, or, or. it has to be technical. I, I have a big mouth. And so <laughs> it could be um, and or one or the we other. We have uh, <laughs> a lot of my life is guided by, I touched on this earlier, my martial arts background and the value system that was instilled upon me by my, by my sensei. Um, and so in our home, we have three scrolls hanging in our basement. Uh, they're they're um, Japanese scrolls that I had made and they are they help form the basis of the value system that we teach to our daughter. Okay. And each scroll represents a different concept and they are uh, honor, which we explained to our daughter when she was basically a year old, which means do the right thing. And that's just something that uh, is a guiding principle in my life. I try to do the right thing. Now we can all, we can all disagree or agree as to what that is, but if it's a goal, then that's a good thing. As long as your compass is generally pointing in the right direction as to what good and bad is. Um, the second scroll is one for integrity. And we explain that to our daughter as um, you do the right thing when no one's watching. Okay. Because there are t some folks in this world that only do the right thing when they know they're being watched. And the best example I can give is you're in the bathroom and you wash your hands. Uh, like I hope most of us are doing these days. Uh, my kid is being the exception at eight years old. We're still trying to get that down. Um, is, you know, you, you, you dry your hands with the towel, you wad it up and you shoot a basket. Okay. And you miss and it ends up on the floor and the bathroom is empty. How many of us pick it, go over there, pick it up and throw it in the trash versus how many of us don't? Yeah, that's a measure of integrity. And we all, because the only judge of that is ourselves. Because there's no one else that's going to know whether I pick that up or not. Okay. And many years ago, I think I was the type that left it there. And I'm a little happier to say that today I pick it up. Okay. And so, and the last scroll in our home, um, the rough translation of it is um, love for humanity. And that we teach that to our daughter as be nice to people, you know, and those are, those are our family values that we're trying to make simple and basic. And so that'd be the answer to the first question. The second question is uh, about advice. And I would, I would, I would talk about my father. And so uh, people have heard me say this before. My dad is a, he's a great guy. He's very laid back. Um, he, he's a, he's a 
roll with the punches kind of guy. And um, the things he taught me were that I try to live by this day are, um, he said to um, be nice. He said to don't sweat the little things. And he said to never be afraid to tell you're sorry. And I find that in this world we live in now where there's a lot of venom and, and, and just animosity in our culture with social media and some of the other things that when people are wrong, they become even more um, married to their position. Um, it gets stronger, not weaker, because of this inability to just look at a situation and say, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. And so those are some of the guiding principles in my life that I use to navigate this crazy world that we live in today. Well, I'll tell you what, this for me has been an incredible conversation. I hope you guys have had as much fun as I have. It's been a blast. Yeah, it's been fun. And, and I learned it, so much about my wife. I know, right? <laughs> now we could go take an immigration yeah, test. I didn't know It'll she was great. drinking different yes. lattes. <laughs> immigration. Yeah, now, now you know not the vanilla latte. Yeah, you can exactly. Go to Any, anyone is fine. I yeah, got that anyone, one wrong. just go for That's it. That's right, and, and I think... <laughs> It, it cements in my mind why I love you both so much and why you're such good friends to to us and, and our family. And I'll tell you what, um, if, if if anyone needed to contact you, had questions about stuff, how would they best go about reaching you guys to learn more either about your personal journeys and how you might mentor them and or if they needed help in a various area of law that you guys are, are in, how would they go well, about that? That's easy. That? We love to share and we obviously are no strangers to talking. And so, um, <laughs> you know, shy. and I and I keep my cell phone number on my business card. I know my wife doesn't for security reasons and I, I actually support that. I don't want the world having my wife's cell phone number. Um, but mine's on my card. It's 303-589-2212. Anyone can call the office at excuse me, 303-733-6353. Our emails are Brian, B-R-I-A-N, and Colleen is C-O-L-L-E-N at ramoslaw.com. So those are all easy ways to get a hold of us. And, you know, we're around 24-7. And that's the beauty of having a, a wife that's a lawyer and, and understands that sometimes duty calls. And, you know, the same is true for her. And mm -hmm. we're, we're always there for our clients and for people that need us. Doesn't matter what time it is or where we are. Well, again, thank you yeah. both so much for the time and for uh, giving of yourselves on this podcast. I'm sure people will have a lot of feedback. If you guys listening do have any notes, please reach out. Uh, you can reach out to uh, me at jim at ramoslaw.com or to Brian or Colleen. So until next time, you guys enjoy your day and we'll look forward to talking with you again soon.